Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney and this is the Bob Arum 90th birthday edition of the podcast. Neither of us is going to try and lead the rest of you in celebratory song, a la Tyson Fury. Uh, but Top Rank did send out an email to mark the occasion, uh, packed with facts and figures about Aram's promotional achievements. Uh, interestingly, there are just eight states in the union in which Aram has not promoted a card yet, uh, including, interestingly, to me, the three in which I've lived, Vermont, Virginia, and Alaska. Virginia kind of surprises me. Vermont and Alaska I get. But, you know, I figure Virginia, especially in the D.C. burbs, there'd be an arena that would have hosted a top-ranked show at some point in the last 50 years or so. But, in total, at least prior to Saturday night, there have been 2,119 fight cards under the top-ranked banner, including 550 in Nevada, 412 in New Jersey, 41 featuring Miguel Cotto, <sighs> and not the last time we'll mention his name today. Right. Uh, 129 on uh, some network called HBO, uh, a surprisingly high to me, 98 on CBS, and uh, 30 on Showtime, among many other different facts, uh, which got me to wondering, Eric, uh, what kind of podcasting figures do you think you'll have put up by the time you're 90 and somebody sends out a celebratory email <laughs> or whatever it is that people will be doing by the time we're 90? Right. Um, well, hopefully the first statistic will be retired from podcasting for about 40 years when I'm 90. <laughs> yes. Not that I don't love doing this, but uh, I've been podcasting for 12 years already, yeah. uh, co-hosted, produced, and edited five different podcasts, and every man has a breaking point, um, especially when it comes to how many times you're willing to wake up at 4.45 a.m. on a Sunday to watch all the boxing exactly. from Saturday night in order to podcast about it. Yes. So, uh, yeah, at least let me dream about a world in which I no longer need the side income. Um, but anyway, the most important statistic will be my win-loss record in podcast picks competitions, where I am well above 500, uh, beating you and Detloff both like a drum, although perhaps less so uh, than, than I was uh, prior to this year, as we'll discuss also later on the show. Um, but back to the main topic. Happy birthday to Bob Arum. He is a marvel. Here's to many more years of cursing at Mike Coppinger. <laughs> exactly. Um, this week on the podcast, we will be previewing the final Showtime fight card of the year, the Jake Paul Tyron Woodley 2 pay-per-view. And joining us to provide a little perspective on that uh, is our good friend Brian Campbell, lover of boxing, MMA, and all the strange hybrid stuff in between, and co-host of Morning Combat, which recently won the Fighters Only Award for Best MMA Programming. Uh, we will also analyze the International Boxing Hall of Fame's newly announced Class of 22, for the second time. Uh, and I will count down my top five in-ring performances of 2021. But first, we had a busy Saturday of fights. There's a lot to talk about. Let's start with the 39-year-old Marvel Nonito Donaire, who refuses now to let any of his opponents get past the fourth round. Yeah, how about it? Uh, Donaire took on fellow Filipino Raymart Caballo in Carson, California, atop a Showtime Championship boxing triple header, and made it two fourth-round knockouts in a row in 2021. Uh, first, he stopped Nordin Ubali in four in May, and he did the same to Gabayo with a sickening left hook to the liver, ending matters at 2.59 of the fourth. Gabayo suffers his first official loss. He's now 24-1 and with 20 knockouts, while the future Hall of Famer Donaire moves to 42-6 and and scores his 28th knockout. It was a close fight through three. I didn't think any of the first three rounds were easy to score, 
But then Daenerys started landing big body shots. He had a couple of good ones prior to the punch that finished it. Kieran, I don't even really have a question for you. I'm just going to ask you to gush for a minute or two about how spectacular and unlikely this run from Nanito is. It's it's truly extraordinary, isn't it? I, I was writing an obituary for Nonito Donea's career back in October 2014 mm-hmm. after he faced Nicholas Walters at 126 pounds. Uh, by his standards, he was uncharacteristically grouchy during that fight week. He was just a couple of fights removed from being outboxed by Guillermo Rigondeau. And then Walters knocked him out in six. And at the age of 32, considered well-aged, for a little fellow, mm-hmm. uh, it seemed his race was won. Um, and I thought that was pretty much it. Put together a little run, but, you know, he lost to Carl Frampton, lost to Jesse Magdaleno. It looked as if he was settling into this high-level gatekeeper role. And when he was lined up for a shot at Noya in Oway, I was not slow to express my very real concern for his well-being. Uh, but the key has been moving back down to bantamweight. That's enabled him to compete on more even terms physically once more. And once he could do that, he could let his skills do the talking. And if his physical gifts have eroded a smidgen, and it's not obvious that they have, Donner has compensated, I think, with greater wisdom and experience. And if his reaction times are perhaps now a little slower, as they should be, he's got that experience now that enables him to know in advance that he needs to react. And so it's kind of like it appears to have evened itself out somewhat. Um, But even so, after putting in that tremendously brave performance and losing to Inoue, the run he's been on since, his performances in 2021 have been outstanding. Look, he appears as light on his feet as ever. His punch selection is as strong as ever. He sets up his punches as well as he ever did. And now... It's so much fun to, to to watch him sort of go through the gears, spend a few rounds coming to terms with his opponent and then turning it up and setting up his foe for the finish. You know, that's what he did against Dubali last time out. And as you alluded to, that's what he did on Saturday night. It, it was that left hook to the body that finished it. But before that, like you said, he'd already landed a couple of good body shots that round to soften him up. And even before those body shots, there were a couple of really good right hands to the head mm-hmm. that kind of caught Caballo's attention and slowed him down. That left hook didn't come out of nowhere. It was as if he spent those first few rounds figuring the guy out without giving very much away. And then once he'd figured it out, just deciding, okay, I'm going to set him up and finish him off now. He's got this beautiful economy of motion about him now. That you know, he, it's, he rips these powerful punches without very obviously torquing his body a great deal. He, he's really such a beautiful boxer to watch right now. And I think about how concerned I was about no, about his fight with it in no way before mm-hmm. that. And once he'd had the fight with Inoue, thinking, please retire now, Nonito. You have nothing left to prove. You might only get hurt more. And then to see him come back and do this, it's interesting, isn't it? So many athletes talk about wanting to find that sweet spot between still having the physical gifts, but also being able to apply the extra wisdom that they've applied over the years you would think that Anito had missed that window, right. but he appears to be right in it right now, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's incredible. And as I mentioned, I think moving back down to bantamweight was key. Yep. Clearly, 118 pounds is the best weight for him. So what do you think? Who do you want to see him fight next? And given that he's clearly not listening to my suggestions to retire, any guesses at all as to how much longer he can keep doing this? So in terms of who I want to see him fight next, I mean, he has without a doubt earned a rematch with Inoue. Um, and I think that's the only fight at 118 that 
really means a lot for Daener. Um, you know, if Estrada or Chocolatito or Srisaket wanted to move up from 115, great. Those are all intriguing fights. But in terms of the other fighters currently at 118, it's in a way. Uh, I mean, Casimero is good, but I don't see Donaire making that fight after Casimero talked crap right. about Rachel Donaire. Uh, Rigondeaux rematch? The time has passed. Um, I guess Rushy Warren is somewhat appealing based on the way he fought last time out, but clearly everything pales in comparison to an Inouye rematch. Um, and so in terms of the question of, of how much longer Nonito can keep doing this, I think how much longer he'll want to is limited because there aren't that many major challenges for him. If he was a welterweight and there was Crawford and Spence and so on, and he could be part of a round robin of big fights, maybe he stretches this out two or three more years as long as he's continuing to perform well. But I feel like the desire and the risk reward equations have to flip the other way soon. Um, based on what we've seen the last couple of years, if you told me he still physically has three elite years left in him, I wouldn't doubt you. Um, he obviously takes great care of himself and he's as confident as ever in who he is in the boxing ring. Mm. But if I had to guess, I'd say, you know, he turns 40 next year. I suspect he decides to retire before he turns 41 in 2023. So like another two or three fights, I'm thinking something mm. like that. Um, by the way, one quick criticism of Donaire reading your thank yous off your phone Come on, that, that, that's amateur hour. Um, I, I went to an open mic stand-up comedy night a few years ago, and a bunch of the young aspiring comics were reading off their phones or at least glancing at their phones to remind them of the bits they wanted to do. It just takes you out of it as an audience mm -hmm. member. So that is one thing to work on for next time, Nonito. Memorize your thank yous. <laughs> Um, in the co-feature, we saw a little bit of that Carson, California magic, uh, although it petered out as the fight turned into a rout in the second half. But we saw an upset as Cody Crowley bloodied and battered Kudgatio Abdukakarov in an exciting battle of unbeaten welterweights, winning a unanimous 10-round decision that should have been a lot more lopsided than it was. I'm not sure how Pat Russell scored it, just 95-94. The other two scores of 98-91 and 97-92 were more reasonable, as Crowley, to my eyes, dominated the fight, despite suffering a flash knockdown in round two. Uh, in our tweet of the week, our friend David Greisman, uh, at FightingWords2 on Twitter, certainly didn't have any doubts about who was winning, as he noted late in the fight, quote, Kudratio Abdukakarov has three K's and two L's in his name, but Cody Crowley's about to help him even those out. Uh, it's, it's somewhere between cringy and clever, maybe a bit of both, but, uh, but I liked it. I'm giving David Tweet of the Week honors for that. Um, anyway, uh, really powerful anecdote shared by the broadcast team that Crowley ran out of money recently and had to sell his car. He really had everything on the line here. And he fought like it. He just wouldn't stop coming. He wouldn't stop throwing punches. And the more highly touted Abdukakarov just couldn't adjust. Uh, Crowley is now 20-0 with nine KOs. Abdukakarov falls to 18-1 with 10 KOs. Kieran, how did Crowley pull off this upset? And what the hell happened to that slow as molasses guy you and I both saw on YouTube that led us to pick Abdukakarov? All I can figure is he's been playing the long con. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, yeah, it was a very big feature for both of us making that pick. You know, we did our research. We we, we found footage of Crowley, felt that he had good technique, but really leapt out to both of us just how slow his hands appeared to be. And 
one of the reasons behind, you know, that, that I picked up Dukakarov was the fact that he appeared to be the kind of uh, uh, person who, who worked to cut off the ring, to keep his opponent in front of him and in the pocket. But I thought that that strategy would work against him, against Abdukakarov. And a large part of that was because I thought that his punches seemed so slow. And mm-hmm. I thought that Abdukakarov would, would beat him to the punch. But it was not just his ring generalship. But it was his hand speed, among other things, that won the day on Saturday. Uh, that was not what I was expecting. Um, I think one reason he was able to punch so much better and faster than Abdukakarov was his punches were nice and straight and short. Um, he controlled the distance very well. He was just simply the first to pull the trigger repeatedly over mm-hmm. the course of the evening. Um, you know, and that is the thing. And we, we did touch on this a little bit last week, that even... As he ran up 18 straight wins to open his professional account, Abdukakarov would sometimes look a little loose in some of his exchanges. And that finally bit him in the ass on Saturday. He came up against someone with his level of talent, but who, at least on this night, had a much more disciplined skill set, who was able to take advantage of Abdukakarov's looseness and, and produce an excellent display of boxing um, to take a really very well deserved win, which I agree with you was actually much more. Uh, and that sort of uh, uh, wider range of the scores. Look, this division is absurdly strong, and it's getting stronger, as we'll discuss shortly. I don't know how much noise Crowley's going to end up being able to make. Um, I suspect rather strongly that he'll never quite make the elite of, of a division that that includes, you know, the likes of the Virgil Ortiz's and Boots Ennis's of the world, but... This was a tremendous performance. You could almost tell that this was one of those performances where he knew it was do or die, that it had to be this or nothing. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of what he's done, he is fully deserving of more opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And it it jumped out uh, almost immediately that I totally understood why... Floyd Mayweather used him as a sparring partner in preparation for the Conor McGregor fight, by the way. I mean, there's physical resemblance, hmm. but but also just, uh, you know, he's obviously way better at boxing than Conor McGregor, but this, Floyd found the perfect guy to sort of simulate a McGregor type, but uh, right. yeah, but uh, boy, that, I, I couldn't believe how fast his hands were. Like, one yeah. round into the fight, Absolutely I was like, wait a minute, that's not the same guy I was looking at. I, I'm, I'm almost wondering if, like, all the YouTube videos I saw, I'd accidentally played them at, like, 0.7 <laughs> times the speed or something it was Maybe. that baffling or perhaps is this an identical twin there's cody crowley and <laughs> carl crowley and we got the oh, other right. one here i don't know right. i don't know um look in the opening bout our podcast guest last week brandon lee found himself in a real fight for the first time in his career in as much as he went past four rounds for the first time but he did keep his ko streak going by stopping one araldez with a right hand at two minutes and 11 of the seventh round araldez now 16 two and one with 10 ko's and some ex- success as they exchange punches in round one and and perhaps that convinced lee to box more uh but brandon now 24 and 0 with 22 ko's patiently broke araldez down got him out of there while getting as much ring experience under his belt as he did in his previous four fights combined eric brandon said afterwards that his dad didn't much like the fight um or his performance what did you like from him in the in this fight what didn't you like uh, was it important that he ultimately found the knockout punch and didn't allow araldez to last the full 10 rounds yeah, last question first. Yeah, I think it mattered for him to to get the KO, not in terms of his development or in terms of whether he gets more opportunities. He was going to get more opportunities with a decision win also, but just in terms of marketability and, and keeping the hype train rolling, his power is a big selling point. I, I think it was important to get the KO, not essential, but, but definitely makes a difference in terms of his momentum. Mm. As for likes and dislikes, 
you had to be impressed with the patience. I thought he looked a lot more comfortable boxing his way along once he realized it wasn't going to be quick and easy than, say, Edgar Berlanga has when he was confronted with the same situation. Um, He jabbed to the body. He mixed his combinations to the body and head. He just showed a lot of poise, I thought. Um, He's clearly not a one-dimensional puncher, which we knew, but this reinforced it. On the negative side, the defense in the first round was troubling. There there wasn't much head movement, and he really left himself open whenever he threw, especially to the left hook. He was really open for that. But that's about it. You know, tighten up the defense, work on staying defensively responsible while exchanging. Not much else to be concerned with here. Um, by the way, random observation, since that's what I do. Um, it occurred to me mid-fight that Juan Araldez very much physically resembles Scott Pemberton. Do you remember him, Scotty Pemberton? Wow, blimey, barely, yes. <laughs> All right, well, uh, maybe you haven't seen his face in a while. Uh, you look it up, Google it. Uh, you younger fans, look him up as well and tell me if you think he looks like Juan Araldez. And uh, by the way, you could certainly find worse ways to spend your time than YouTubing Pemberton's fights with Omar Shika. That's a fun little yes. rabbit hole to yes. go down. Um, let's update the scores from our picks contest. And uh, this is actually the final score update of the year. We're not going to make picks on this coming Saturday's card. And frankly, it would be near impossible for me to make up the ground anyway. Uh, Kieran, you came in with a 79-74 lead. I needed to get some exact KO rounds correct, or I needed to go contrarian and pick Cody Crowley. I did neither of the above. We both had Brandon Lee by KO, but neither of us got the round right. So two points apiece there. We both had Abdukakarov by decision, zero points apiece for that one. And we both had Donaire by KO, but again, didn't get the round right. So once again, two points apiece, which means the final standings are Mulvaney 83, Raskin 78. Uh, I still lead the Lifetime Series 2-1, but you will come into 2022 as the defending champion. Want to take a victory lap, Kieran? No, not at all. Um, I... uh... This new regime will be characterized by nothing but class. And so while I find it sweet that you feel you have to point to previous success, all (laughs) I will do now is point out that as of now, you're a loser. And I'll leave it at that. (laughs) That's fine. That's fine. All right. Let's uh, let's see if that comes back to bite you. Although probably even if I win next year, 12 months from now, I'll have completely forgotten that you called me a loser in this moment. So, oh, my God, I'll be for these passing year. I'm just happy every time I can remember my name. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, let's move on to all the other fights from Saturday that we didn't make official picks on. Uh, and we start with the uh, ESPN main event at Madison Square Garden, which saw top lightweight and former pound-for-pound king Vasily Lomachenko win a wide unanimous decision over Richard Comey. Scores were 117-110 and 119-108 twice. Uh, certainly the most interesting development in the fight came in round seven when Lomachenko scored a one-punch knockdown along the ropes. Comey got up very wobbly and uh, Loma started telling Comey's corner to stop the fight. Uh, They didn't, and when Loma hurt Comey again a few punches later, he stopped punching and became more animated in trying to convince Comey's corner to end the fight. Um, Eric, what do you think of Lomachenko's performance overall? Uh, And did he cast himself a knockout by yelling at the corner to stop the fight instead of just moving in and looking for the finishing punch? Quite possibly. Um, That was strange. I've never quite seen that before. I've seen fighters gesture to the corner, or the Mm. ref especially, to stop it. But Loma flat out stopped fighting, taking several seconds to get his point across two separate times. And it occurred to me that it puts the corner in a tough spot because maybe they were thinking of stopping it. But aren't you going to be reluctant to acquiesce to the opponent's wishes? I mean, could you imagine having to explain that to Comey if you stopped it? If he's like, 
I was okay. Why did you stop it? Oh, because my opponent asked you to. Great. Um, <laughs> it would be weird. Um, and Comey did recover after the seventh round and showed he did have plenty left. And so I think you can say the corner was right not to stop it. Although his leg was doing some funky things the second time Loma asked them to stop it. It was not listening to his brain at all. Um, but yeah, uh, if Loma just keeps fighting there, I think it's more likely than not that he would have gotten a KO7 win as opposed to the W12 that he settled for. That said, very impressive performance overall from Loma. He very well might be the guy I'd favor in any 135-pound yeah. matchup, despite him having lost to Teofimo Lopez. You know, against Lopez in a rematch, against Cambosis, against Gervonta, Haney, Garcia. At the very least, there's nobody I'd make him worse than 50-50 against. Yeah. Um, and he had Comey mentally defeated here by the fourth round, I thought. Um, you know, Comey kept punching after that, but without purpose, really, the rest of the way. Um, I said about three years ago that I thought the absolute apex of Loma had passed. I don't think he's continued to slip any since then. He's If he was 98% apex Loma a couple years ago, he's still 98% apex Loma, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, another very notable result on Saturday, this one from Liverpool, England, a welterweight prospect, or maybe we should call him welterweight contender now. Uh, Connor Ben blasted Chris Algieri out with a single right hand in the fourth round. Definitely a knockout of the year contender and definitely a career best win to this point for Ben. Kieran, do we now believe Ben, uh, viewed primarily as the son of a former champ to this point, should be reframed as a future champ himself? And do you expect this is the end of the road for our friend Chris Algieri? You know, it's funny, just literally seconds before the knockout blow, I was sort of mentally comparing Ben to his father at, at similar stages of their development. And, and in many respects, at that similar stage, I was thinking that the son might be better. You know, mm. dad, dad was more exciting and raw, for sure. And he ultimately became a more rounded boxer. But that, you know, boxing construction, it was it was sort of like an extension that was built on a relatively flimsy foundation Whereas Connor's gone the other way, right? He seems to have built the solid foundation first and is letting the rest kind of come. The more conventional way of going about it. Look, he does look to be now a genuine prospect and indeed, arguably now a contender. I, I did enjoy our friend Andy Lee slowing to Tony Bellew's role a little afterward. Uh, I did think Tony was getting a little excited when he said only Crawford or Spence could beat Ben right, right now. And he was perfectly right to point out that as well as that dismissing the likes of Ordenis Ugas, there are a couple of up-and-comers called Boots Ennis and Virgil Ortiz <laughs> right. to think about. But I do think that Ben has shown signs now that he merits at least being grouped um, when we talk about the up-and-coming potential future welterweight champions, you know, when, which is generally Ennis and Ortiz. Right. I think it's fair to start, you know, mentioning him in a, and also let's not forget uh, Connor Ben kind of a state. I, I think he's a little behind those guys. But everything seems to be going, being put together very well. They seem to be putting together his career very well. And he clearly has talent and he clearly has skills. Um, this was an impressive win, uh, not just the knockout, but the way he set it up. And also, I thought the way he boxed for the three plus rounds before that, the body shots were very impressive. The upper body movement that, were, that was quite a lot like um, uh, his, his dad, um, the ring generalship. Um, but yeah, look, it's the KO that's going to get the attention. Chris has been dropped before, of course, multiple times, as right. we know, by Spence and Pacquiao alone. But he survived Ruslan Provodnikov and he made it to the end against Amir Khan. He kept getting up against Spence. 
look, yes, he is now 37 and he's a sort of part-time boxer, but he has skills and experience at a top level. Um, so this was a very good win for Conor Ben. That said, yes, uh, I would be quite happy if Chris retired after this. It's never easy to see a, a friend get sparked out like that. I'm not sure that Chris Algieri needs that kind of aggravation anymore. He's got a fine ringside career. He's got other skills to lean on. But for Ben, I'm now very interested to see how far he goes. Uh, he deserves the plaudits that he's receiving right now for this performance. This is a very good good outing for him. Definitely. Uh, let's round up all the rest of the overseas action. Um, on the Ben Algieri undercard, Katie Taylor did what Katie Taylor does, winning a tough competitive decision over Frusa Sharapova. Uh, and promoter Eddie Hearn indicated they do indeed plan to fight Amanda Serrano next. In Ekaterinburg, Russia, Dmitry Bivol did what Dmitry Bivol does, jabbing his way to a lopsided points win over Umar Salomov. And in Dubai, two notable results. Uh, flyweight titleist Sonny Edwards overcame a bad cut to win a wide decision over Jason Mama and stay undefeated. And Donny Nietes and Norberto Jimenez fought to a draw over 10 rounds, made memorable by the fact that it was originally a 12-rounder, and Jimenez had no idea it had been in, it had been shortened and was expecting a round 11, even as Nietes was on the other side of the ring getting ready to take his gloves off. Uh, Eric, what would you like to comment on among all of that? Uh, I'll take the Dubai fights first. Uh, they aired on Axis TV. I didn't realize I had Axis TV, but indeed I do. So I checked those out. And the Nietes-Jimenez fight warrants a little exploration. Um, just bizarre. I don't know who screwed up, but someone screwed up. Mm. And uh, who knows if Jimenez fights the last couple of rounds with more urgency. Um, it seems logical to assume he was saving something for the six minutes that he thought were remaining. But it led to a bizarre scene, um, and I guess ultimately I'd say it makes a draw an even more appropriate result here. Um, now, I wasn't scoring carefully, but I know Nietes got off to a great start, and then Jimenez came on in the second half. The broadcasters seemed to believe 95-95 was a reasonable scorecard, but it's especially appropriate because the controversial quasi-early ending makes a rematch make sense, and I think a draw helps lead to that rematch. Um, and, and this was a fairly entertaining fight. Nobody is likely to object to a rematch. And by the way, both fighters came into this bout with five draws apiece on their records. <laughs> These guys are magnets for draw decisions. <laughs> um, moving on to the other fights, uh, boy, Pifal is just so uninspiring, and, and yeah. I don't see it turning around at this point. It seems this is who he is until he faces someone good enough to hurt him and or force him into a real fight. Uh, Katie Taylor... We'll have more to say about Serrano in the next segment of the podcast, but obviously that's a fantastic fight. Probably the best fight that could be made in all of women's boxing, and Madison Square Garden is the perfect place for it. Mm. And I probably ever so slightly favor Serrano, but again, only ever so slightly. Um, how about you? Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, any of these assorted fights over the weekend? Yeah, the Katie Taylor win was a little scrappy. Um, I, I felt that in, in recent fights, she's really been working well on her boxing. I thought she'd been doing a really good job with her jab on controlling the distance. This is a little bit of a reversion to some bad habits of not using the jab as well as she could, not really setting the distance, falling into her punches a little. Didn't matter a great deal because, you know, after the, a close few rounds at the beginning, she demonstrated quite clearly she was at least a level above Sharapova. But yeah. um, uh, I'd certainly want to see her uh, go back to more of her boxing skills there against Serrano. Serrano will probably look to to get into a good fight, and I think it's incumbent upon Taylor to, to use that jab and use those skills if that fight happens. Um, Bivol, on the other hand, 
is technically excellent. There's very little to criticize technically. His jab is beautiful. His balance is solid. His footwork and hand speed are good. His combinations are clean. But yeah, like you said, this this was a continuation of, of a relatively recent Bivol trend in that he does what he needs to do. He does it very well indeed. He's an excellent exponent of the speed science. He might have the style and skills to beat someone like an Artur Bedabiev. But this is price fighting. And the way he fights means he's likely to fall short on the financial prize side of his profession. He mm. just always leaves you wanting more, doesn't he? I mean, would you ever rewatch a Dimitri Bivol fight if you didn't have to? <laughs> no. um, he's such an excellent boxer that he shouldn't underwhelm. And I keep, but he does. And I keep wanting him to be more exciting. But yeah, I have now accepted that this is how Dimitri Bivol is. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm, I'm remembering uh, when Dan Raphael came up with the excellent nickname for Malik Scott of Malik W8 Scott, because all of his fights were just eight round decisions for a while <laughs> early in his career. I think Dimitri Bivol might be getting the nickname for me, Dimitri X4 Bivol, because X4 is the DVR fast forward speed at which I oh. tend to watch his fights. <laughs> Look up the result and then just kind of zip through it and see if I missed anything. All right, let's look ahead. Uh, we are coming up on the last major fight weekend of the year, and the fight that will get by far the most attention is on Showtime pay-per-view on Saturday, December 18th, headlining a four-fight card beginning at 9 p.m. from Tampa, Florida. It's YouTuber-turned-undefeated cruiserweight boxer Jake Paul, who wanted to take another small step up in his fifth pro fight, but instead he's taking a step sideways by fighting the man he defeated by eight-round split decision four months ago, MMA veteran Tyron Woodley. Uh, Paul had intended to take on Tommy Fury, but Fury pulled out on just 12 days' notice, citing a chest infection and a broken rib, so Woodley got the call. Kieran, we've spoken about our reluctance to take the Paul brothers seriously and then them chipping away at that with Logan's credible performance in an exhibition against Floyd Mayweather, and Jake obviously training hard and respecting the sport and doing well for himself, as celebrity boxers go, at least. So were you intrigued by Paul Fury, and how was your interest level affected by the opponent change? Yeah, I was somewhat starting to uh, fall a little bit for the hype with the Tommy Fury fight, although I wouldn't have been if it were he not a Fury, right? Were Tommy another boxer with the same record and the same apparent level of talent, I wouldn't have cared a bit. Hmm. Um, he was carefully selected as every jake paul opponent so far has been carefully selected and there's nothing wrong with that by the way it's no different than what any other 4-0 boxer would do but i for me the intrigue there was definitely in seeing the legit baddest man on the planet and the baddest dad on the planet in the opposite corner from from the Pauls. Mm -hmm. um and yes my interest level is diminished by by tommy fury and the fury family not being uh involved um We've seen this fight before. It wasn't a very good fight. Uh, it was a bit of a frustrating experience. Woodley had Paul in trouble, arguably should have had a knockdown, but did spend far too long just staring at him and not letting his hands go. <clears throat> I guess there's intrigue in that you have to wonder, well, you know, Woodley had an MMA career. He wasn't a natural boxer, but now he's had a bit of boxing experience. And given that he has all those years of combat sports experience, you know, does that kick in now? He gets a second chance in a boxing ring against Paul. I, I don't know. Can Paul improve against him? Probably. Can Woodley improve? Almost certainly, I would think. But whether he will or not is a different matter. You know, generally, if I want to see a rematch, it's because it's been a really good fight the first time. This doesn't fulfill my criteria for wanting to see a rematch. But, you know, here we are. 
it is what it is and it's, it's not anybody's fault it's not jake paul's fault right. fights fights fall through and for a fight for him to put together at the last minute given what had gone into the, the woodley fight beforehand in terms of the build-up and given them yapping at each other afterwards this was a perfectly fine substitute fight for him to come up with it, it's not his fault as he will learn, it is part of boxing. Sometimes yep. you get all hyped for a really big fight and then it pulls through and you have to do something else. So no blame anywhere. Uh, I'm just not super excited by it. Fair enough. Um, so whether we like it or not, it is nonetheless another Jake Paul pay-per-view. We have touched on this subject in the past uh, and you sort of hinted at it in your in your intro here. But where are you falling these days on the question of whether Jake Paul is good or bad or neither for boxing? So I actually think he's more positive than negative for the sport, uh, although his success causes the passive observers to make negative assumptions about the sport. Mm. And what, what I mean by that is, if you don't really follow boxing, you don't know much about boxing, and you're seeing all this attention Jake Paul is getting, the natural assumption is that, gee, boxing must be in terrible shape if a YouTuber right. with four fights can take over the sport in this way. Um, never mind that this happens to some degree in every sport. Um, as an example, Tim Tebow not getting an opportunity to play like eight years ago. That was dominating all football discussion. And that didn't mean the NFL was in bad shape. It just meant that people are drawn to the weird and the interesting. And right. Stephen A. Smith is always going to have more to say about Tim Tebow than about who the best run blocking guard in the league is. Um, right. I'm getting a bit off track, but the point is people who are predisposed to lazily say boxing is dead are more certain that boxing is dead because Jake Paul can come right in and get all this attention. Um, but aside from that, I think he's mostly good for boxing. Uh, he is taking it seriously, whatever his limitations. He trains hard. He tries hard. He sure as hell promotes well. Um, yep. He's not unwilling to make the fights that his fans and his haters want to see him in. And for now, Showtime is not using up budget that could go elsewhere on him. Um, right. He's fighting on pay-per-view. He, he's not taking budget or dates away from other quote-unquote real fighters. Um, and, and speaking of those real fighters, the biggest positive is that Jake Paul gets the world's most casual boxing fans to see some of those real fighters they would otherwise never have heard of when they're on his undercards. Um, that provided a little jolt to Montana Love's career last time out, and it might do it again for one of these undercard fighters on Saturday night. Uh, so let's talk specifically about who is on this undercard. It's a real mix of different types of fights and fighters. We have arguably the best female boxer on the planet, the aforementioned Amanda Serrano. She's 41-1-1 with 30 knockouts, uh, fighting on her second straight Jake Paul undercard. She meets Miriam Gutierrez, 14-1, five KOs, whose only loss came by decision against Katie Taylor last year. There's also a meaningful men's fight, two undefeated 140-pounders, Southpaw Liam Paro of Australia, 21-0 with 13 KOs, taking on Puerto Rico's Yomar Alamo, 20-0-1 with 12 knockouts. And then there's the four-rounder. It's a battle of unbeatens, I suppose. Uh, former NFL running back Frank Gore facing former NBA point guard Darren Williams, both making their pro debuts. We know which undercard fight the mainstream media and non-boxing Twitter will be paying the most attention to. Uh, which of these fights has your attention, Karen? Unsurprisingly, Serrano Gutierrez. Um, I'm an unabashed fan of Amanda Serrano, uh, but I don't know. And I think we, we talked about this as technically sound 
as it was. I don't know whether her last performance on the first Paul Woodley undercard was necessarily the kind of thing to really um, show the more casual fight fans exactly why she is so good. Uh, maybe Gutierrez will be different. Um, she's a good fighter, Gutierrez. But as you mentioned, a little over a year ago, she stepped up against Katie Taylor and was dropped and essentially blanked on the scorecard. So we've got a nice storyline here um, following Katie Taylor winning on Saturday night in advance of them possibly meeting in Madison Square Garden next year. It's not just the case of, you know, here's Amanda Serrano. How well can she do against Miriam Gutierrez? It's her competing against Katie Taylor, competing yep. against Miriam Gutierrez. So, um She's going to want to try. She can really hype up that meeting if she's able to defeat Gutierrez more handily than Taylor, and especially uh, if she's able to stop her. So how about you? You got any thoughts on the other two fights? Uh, yeah, I'll start with Paro Alamo. Um, full disclosure, I'd never heard of either of these fighters when the mm. card was announced. I'll uh, hand in my boxing hardcore card as I exit, I guess. Um, this is uh, <laughs> Paro's first time fighting outside Australia. He's beaten nobody of note, but he has beaten a lot of opponents with good records. His last eight opponents were a combined 129, 12, and 5. Uh, Alamo, after fighting in Puerto Rico a lot earlier in his career, has fought his last seven in Kissimmee, Florida. And he's beaten a few decent fighters, uh, most notably 17-0 Kendo Castaneda by majority decision. Paro is 25, Alamo is 26. Simply put, this is a good-looking fight, at least on paper. As for Gore versus Williams, I have to admit, I'm curious. You know, not excited, not pumped, but curious. At the very least, I expect that this will be better than Refrigerator Perry versus Minute Bowl. Uh, <laughs> hey, you got you to set the bar somewhere. I'm setting it low. There you go. So what is the line on how far into that fight between undefeated prospects before Morrow brings out his first Remember the Alamo? Line. <laughs> Ooh, that's like, well first of all i don't know for sure if moro is calling this card he probably uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying he isn't i just uh, i don't know and sometimes they mix it up on some of these unusual broadcasts so if moro is calling this card uh you know what i i, I doubt he i doubt we get to the opening bell i think sometime during the ring walk <laughs> yeah. we're getting a remember the hell yeah yeah i think he might especially if he wins that's definitely gonna be yeah there you go at least uh, one mention of that would be paro for the course i think in course, this one. of course oh very good thank you and of course the sad thing is we're well enough connected that we might be able to actually influence <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, we, I wouldn't advise anyone put real money on the over-under yeah. here. We, we could tamper with it, yeah. Exactly. Um, joining us now to opine further on this event and to shed light on other news in the boxing world is an old and good friend of the podcast in this and other iterations. He is the combat sports correspondent for CBS Sports. He is the co-host of Morning Combat, which is available uh, thrice weekly, I believe, on the YouTubes. And most importantly, he wakes up every morning daring to be great. Brian Campbell. <laughs> What's up, my friend? I think like using my cheesy Twitter bio intro against me. I love that tactic. Wow. Um, I love that, you know, uh, I haven't been on the show in a while, but we got a YouTube fight. Let's get the YouTube guy. So, you know, I take that as the necessary insult that it is. Thank you very much. Well, Luke wasn't available. Yeah. Right. That's that's the key. Touché. Thing. Yes. yes. 
So, uh, yeah, we, we wanted to have you on for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, you being a, a YouTuber is, is one of them. Uh, I guess uh, another way to say it is that you're an MMA expert uh, and uh, you know a lot more about Tyron Woodley than we do. And then the big thing is you are an unabashed fan of circus sideshow fights. Um, however, Reformed, Eric. Okay, the Evander Holyfield Triller experiment <laughs> has left a, a very bad taste in my mouth. So I'm a reformed lover of trash fights, yes. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a good way to describe it um the thing about it is that with each fight jake paul becomes maybe a little bit less of a circus sideshow fighter and inches a little closer to being taken seriously as a competent professional boxer and uh, of course his original plan for this weekend was to face a fellow pro boxer for the first time tommy fury pulled out however do you see any danger that paul has a letdown having to, to rematch woodley instead of facing tommy fury I think it's an interesting uh, potential for something like that, because I think Tommy Fury had the sellable factor of, oh, now we're fighting now we're fighting real fighters. And, you know, Tommy Fury has had what eight pro fights. So that kind of regards him as a real fighter, even though obviously he's got serious level of questions himself as to how real it's not that I think Tyron Woodley has a chance to be more real since we've already seen him box once. But he did exceed my level of expectations in the first time in terms of showing you know, technique and, and, and certain elements of the game that you like. The thing that I liked the least, which was also a trademark of the tail end of Woodley's UFC career, was the lack of offense when there seemed to be opportunities and openings. So if we get a Tyron Woodley who, you know, wakes up the morning that he got the news and, and realizes he kind of got a, a Christmas gift he didn't see coming, a gift opportunity against the the hottest brand in this sort of side carnival, if you will, subgenre of actual boxing that, you know, if he goes all out guns blazing, he does have potential to maybe even be more dangerous than Tommy Fury for all we know. So there's there is that sort of factor that taking him on last minute, not preparing for him, it's going to a lot of that's going to fall in Tyron Woodley's hands to step it up. But he has even pushing 40 in athleticism, uh, uh, certainly experience in a, in a hand to hand combat and real power that there is that sort of potential for Jake, no question about it. Even if you watched that first fight and even if you thought Jake won more handily than the score suggests, he was at times in, in danger. So I like the idea, maybe it's the Showtime shill sellable factor in me, but I like the idea of talking myself into this being a much more dangerous contest for Jake than the first time around. Because guys, who can improve more on that first uh, fight, Jake or Tyron? In my opinion, it's Tyron Woodley. Yeah, and sort of following on from that, you know, you did, you said before the first fight, you speculated that Woodley couldn't pull the trigger anymore. And, and there certainly were large parts of that fight where you're like, come on, man, like you got him there. But he did end up hurting Paul at one point, and he did let his hands go enough to, you know, as you alluded to, like make it a, a, a fairly close fight on the scorecards. Did he exceed your expectations overall in that fight? Yeah, from what I mentioned just, just a minute ago, he exceeded my expectations in his in his transition of using his MMA skills into a pure boxing setup. Like he did not look novice in terms of his like natural reactions to throwing a jab and countering with the right hand. Look, is he a you know pro boxer level? Absolutely not. But he was way more obviously than a Nate Robinson trying to make the transition. It sure. certainly was not a train wreck. So yes, I, I came similar to, to seeing Conor McGregor against Floyd Mayweather and coming away, all things considered, more impressed by his actual foundational skills. The problem, though, overall, and really for Jake, in this in-between period where he's a non-serious fighter trying to sell us the belief that he's trying to be one, 
is that the more serious you act in trying to act like a boxer, at times that could take away from the potential entertainment value, and at times it could close an, a possible open door to victory. So what I was not impressed about in Tyron Woodley was just everything you just mentioned. When he had Jake Hurt in round four and, and should have been credited with a knockdown, by the way, that could have you know had a big effect on the scorecards, to not follow that up and realize you had a guy hurt and to let the hands go. I, I was, I, Tyron Woodley's end of his MMA career, which was very disappointing and came out of nowhere. I Meaning he went from being UFC welterweight champion on the like way to, could he ever touch GSP's great legacy to losing three, four fights in a row. Mm. I always wrote off the lifelessness at times of look, you know, you're also, he was in there a bunch against a bunch of wrestlers in succession and, a, you know, great wrestlers, guys like, Kamaru Usman, where in the MMA side, not pulling the trigger, there could be different reasons for that. He will have no excuse not to pull the trigger in this rematch. And if the, some of that was somehow lingering in the first fight, then that's the area I was least impressed with, his awareness to know that. But I think uh, if you're going to come in as the B-side against someone like Jake Paul, these fights are obviously not fixed, but they are they are picking you for a reason because they, they see a potential deficiency to get the win you you gotta you gotta obviously take it away from the judges' hands and you've gotta go after it. And I think Tyron Woodley has a lane here if he decides to go after it where that athleticism and natural fighting instincts, it's there, man. Jake's really good for this level, but uh Jake's not perfect either. This is a very winnable fight for Tyron Woodley. So uh I could get again, I could get myself fired up for what this could look like. Um you gotta let the hands go at this level. Meaning at the circus level, you gotta let it go. And you gotta be willing to get knocked out to score one. Is Tyron willing in the rematch? Only Eric Raskin can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. I have I have all the answers, but I'm not going to reveal them here. I'll I'll give you all the answers after the fight. That's that's more my thing. Um, but you mentioned uh, Jake Paul's level. Uh, how far can he take this? I, I mean, look, none of us expect or or want to see him get in the ring with an elite boxer like Canelo or anything. But can you see a world in which? he's finding an opponent against whom he can sell like 2 million pay-per-views is, is there that kind of upside with this whole Jake Paul experience? I think he, the, the answer to that is dependent upon how understanding he is of his own potential limitations. Meaning if, if this is, if this is a plan to keep increasing the, the danger and the celebrity fighter you're facing in hopes of going full on legitimate, I don't know if he has that skills. I don't know if you can do this this quickly. But if he wants to keep it within the grounds of celebrity crossover fighting, get more dangerous guys, but be very careful in the hand-picked nature. Let, let's, be, let's be understandable and honest. And Jake's using the storyline at times to his favor to sort of look like a Robin Hood of combat sports. They don't get paid at the highest level of UFC on the same level of boxing or maybe what they deserve. So there's always going to be the potential for that, whether it's a fighter who's played out his UFC deal or is trying to somehow use leverage against the machine to get a fight with him that Jake has opened up a marketplace where there's going to be a lot of guys like this. And what, you know, what's, what's the... What's the the white whale for Jake Paul? I, I've I've debated this before, you know, to what you're saying, to get a pay-per-view that truly, truly crosses over two million buys and beyond. It's probably Conor McGregor. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that fight not may not make a ton of sense given their height and size to begin with, but that's the perfect type of opponent, a guy who has had big-time success but could be in a position one day soon to maybe make an attempt to get out of his contract when it expires. Um that you would want to chase. If that's the road Jake wants to go down and he realizes that, you know, this this road does not end with like him fighting a, a top 10 boxer, him fighting 
someone, you know, ridiculously credible who grew up in this. Maybe there's a way to steal the public a bit and fight a washed Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. Maybe that's a fun endgame moment there. But as long as he realizes that it's not going to be easy to end this experiment being actually considered a real top 10 fighter, uh, and he stays in the hand-controlled lane of making fun fights, there are some white whales, guys. I mean, the Diaz brothers, if they get out of their contract from the UFC, there are some white whales out there for him that can make fights that the sporting world and beyond is going to is gonna pay attention to. So mm-hmm. um, when he tells us all the time, when we ask him, no, I take myself for real, I do question that sometimes. It's like Karen Mulvaney used to say when talking about Angel uh, Garcia. Is he uh, Is he crazy? Or is he crazy like a fox? You know what I mean? So let me just throw throw the hypothetical at you real quick, Brian. I'm curious. We know it's never going to happen, or at least not anytime soon. Uh, but let's say that they did sign Canelo versus Jake Paul tomorrow. It's a gross mismatch, but enormous names. How many pay-per-views does that fight sell? It, it would be dependent, Eric, to be fair, on if Jake Paul had actually attempted to do some smoke and mirrors matchmaking on the road there and fought not just a Tommy Fury, but like, you know, guys who who have legitimate boxing names, but are also legitimately flawed. There are ways to play with the system. I mentioned Chavez Jr. to get wins that look pretty good. If he had gotten to that point, let's say he literally took on Chavez Jr. one. Right. Which I don't even know if that's possible, but who knows, right? But uh, sure, we're we're doing hypothetical. So yeah, let's hmm. say he let's say he beats Woodley and his next fight takes on Chavez Jr. and beats him, and so now we're looking at Mexican Independence Day 2022. I mean, if you beat a guy that is like looked at as halfway respectable, and I don't even know if any of us could even say that about a Chavez, but let's say he was able to do that and then took a Canelo fight, then the hardcores would know what the fight really was. But the hardcores aren't the ones that extend the uh, pay-per-view buys above, you know, a million and a half, two million, three million. So that doesn't matter. If he did it cold turkey without ever fighting somebody on that level, then no, that's that's James Tony getting into an octagon against, uh, you know, Randy Couture. That's just right. like, like this is this is, you know, it, it is what it is. So um, again, I think it comes down to, you know, what are his limits? Is he legitimately willing to get knocked cold? You know, sometimes you have to ask yourself that. And if you took a fight like that against Canelo, you'd just be doing it for the money. So, uh, no, I don't want you don't really want to see that. I sure don't. The hell's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just want to really quickly follow up on some of the stuff you're saying there. Like, how self-aware do you think he is? Like, you know, does he know does he know his his level? Well, the, the, the crazy like a fox thing clouds this because whether it's just him or their management team, or 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 Nakisa, his uh, his promoter there at MVP Promotions, who who if people don't realize was a CFO of the UFC at one point and a a sort of uh, financial officer for the Fertitta brothers, the original owners, uh, not the original UFC owners, but the original owners of when the Fertittas and Dana took Zufa right. and UFC to unparalleled levels before selling in 2016. So I say all that because they're really smart, and Jake is really smart. On, on trolling, on putting out these videos of trash talk, on all of these things that, like, like I always tell Luke Thomas, uh, my Morning Combat co-host, if there's a young fighter trying to do something and using social media and we think it's ridiculous and corny, that means it worked because we're old dads now and we shouldn't be able right. to understand that. Jake's on that level of playing field. Uh, so I think that a lot of this trolling, the gotcha hat stuff with Floyd, which is goofball stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's like Three Stooges, but it really works. <laughs> He's way smarter than 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 people give him credit. But there's that thing about being a fighter in general. And we say this a lot about aging fighters who have to lie to themselves and be like, you know, they have to not have an understanding of what reality is 
to be able to will themselves to go out there after a tough loss and reinvent themselves and make these comebacks and pull these late age three, you know, thrilling wins that we go nuts for. And these these twilight, you know, chapter runs, man, you got to be a pretty serious con, man. I don't think because he doesn't come from boxing that he'll fall victim to that and end up taking a fight way too far over his head rather than do it strategically and in the right steps and increases. But you never know. There is so much money to be made uh, in this field, putting on, you know, I mean, putting on these type of events, the money that that Floyd and Manny made, even though that was a legitimate one, the money that Floyd and Connor made, even though that had hints of legitimacy to it, to the full-on sublime. Uh, we haven't seen a full-on sublime pay-per-view do stupid numbers yet. If anybody can get that to happen, it's probably Jake Paul. So I'm going to, at the end of the day, lean that he is smarter in every aspect than he shows. I mean, but then is it smart, though, to get splattered against Canelo? Get a stupid payday and be, you know, your name in the books for life. There's some smartness in that, too. Um, but when it comes to sideshow fights, this isn't even the biggest sideshow fight on the card. Paul versus Woodley has nothing on Williams versus Gore. <laughs> Where is your anticipation meter on this one? I still pop for the idea of of a, like a capable athlete trying this. That still mm. is kind of cool to me. Nate Robinson yep. was the low end of it. He had only been training for a couple months and had no background in it. Frank Gore is is different because he's a guy who is a physical specimen, even at his, you know, retired end of his career state. And he had been apparently training, you know, pretty seriously as a side hobby in boxing for years. And as a guy, I mean, look, if you're a tough leading NFL rusher for that long, um, you know, you're going to be a, a physical specimen to begin with. That's interesting against a 6'7 athletic ex-NBA point guard. Um, it's it's interesting in, in the in the cartoonish way of what the hell does this look like? Is one of them going to get not cold? But then also in the look, we saw Chad Johnson in that weird four-round fight he had last time out mm -hmm. on the Floyd Logan undercard. It was somewhat compelling theater. Like it was the level of boxing you'd expect, but it was compelling theater to watch him get off the canvas and do it. So I, I hold a certain level of um, like there are subgenres to this thing, meaning right. – you have legitimate fights, and then you have uh, fights. There's a BKFC bare knuckle lane. There's celebrity boxing. There's this high-level Jake Paul celebrity boxing. Is there another wing in there for guys that are in their late 30s, or early 40s, and they were ex-athletes in other sports at the highest level and just want to have fun? Mm. Uh, mm. That's how you pull the crossovers just as much as you do it by getting goofy people that have big followings. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's something kind of relatable as a viewer about watching a, a Chad Johnson out there trying his hardest, but not really having good technique. It's as the guy on the couch. When I'm watching Floyd Mayweather, I don't sit there thinking, "Oh, I could do that." But when I watch <laughs> Chad Johnson, it's kind of like, "Yeah, that's a little bit like what I might look like if I were trying that." There, there's something weirdly aspirational, well, I, I guess, about it. There's not only that, Eric, but I think the relatable factor is they don't like pretend to have certain levels of boxing skills and then like they go once the fight starts becoming a fight it's a fight and right, that's right. fun to watch that's you early ufc to be fair and not just mm. early early ufc but even into the mid 2000s they still their highest level fights looked like fights not you know expert right. uh, uh mixed martial artists getting there and playing physical chess boxing sometimes we have that too where we crave the all-action war more than we can crave at times the the high level skill set i i wonder this overall bubble meaning the, these non-traditional fights, which Jake Paul, you can argue, is the face of, can they keep going on if we have more boxing point fests? If we have, you know, the, look, the Woodley, Jake Paul had some action. We had a near knockdown. But you almost sign up to that 
looking for both of them to have a shot to go out like Nate Robinson did. And maybe the relatable factor is that these NFL guys might end up being more likely to do that. Or maybe Jake has a little bit too, you know, maybe he's better skilled than he should be for this level. And that, that, that makes him not fight like that. But would you guys agree that the public will only take so many, you know, the Floyd Logan was an experiment. It was some type of lab test. It wasn't my favorite after the fact. I wouldn't want to see that again. Do you think this bubble can stay burst if we're not seeing rough and rowdy, you know, people going after it? Yeah, I suspect it has a shelf life. Um, I I don't know what that shelf life is, and I don't know how the end of it looks. But it feels to me like if you live by the social media trends, you die by the social media trends, and at some point people will wander off onto something else. I suspect, but I'm just an old, crusty, miserable man. So... (laughs) Right. I kind of felt like this from the beginning. So I could be entirely wrong about this. <laughs> You're not that old, right. Kieran. Crusty and, <laughs> crusty and miserable, definitely. Miserable, yes. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's shift to a serious boxing topic or, or two before we let you go, Brian. Um, Kieran asked me recently to rank the all-time top five heavyweight title fights. And I put Fury Ooh. Wilder 3 at number five. Do wow. I have it overrated, underrated, or properly rated? And, and on a side topic... Do you get as appalled as I do every time in these last couple of months some other good fight is going on and the commentator tries to call it the fight of the year, even though we just watched a heavyweight title fight with five knockdowns two months ago? Yeah, yeah. That's, I get about as annoyed as that as I do for uh, – for uh, no, I won't say it, but some some of these networks, you know, calling somebody the pound-for-pound pound king and then calling another fighter the pound-for-pound <laughs> yes, king the next right. week. Right, depending, exactly. Depending upon – yeah, that look, that all that – all, uh, that all kind of sucks, but I, this is a good debate because Fury Wilder had such historic and like barbaric elements to it that it was it was a it was a freaking perfect heavyweight title fight. Like it was a perfect night at the you know at the theater uh, if you're if you're watching this for the pure fandom of it. Uh, I guess the first exercise would be to instantly name ones that you you are diehard sure is ahead of it. So right. are you asking more for? The action or the because sometimes the, the problem with heavyweight boxing debates is it's hard to make things compare to what these fights meant back then in comparison to now. Fury Wilder was this incredible thing for us hardcores, but it meant nothing to society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Lewis Schmeling, too, was pretty damn important to society right. at the time. You know, Right, right. We were talking more about just the quality of the fight, the action and the excitement of, of the fight. So I didn't put like a Lewis Schmeling, two in there. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you quickly, my top five were Ali Frazier, three, Ali Frazier, one, uh, Bo Holyfield, one, and, yes. and and Holmes Norton. And then I had this at, at number five, just ahead of uh, Anthony Joshua and, and Vladimir Klitschko. Does that seem about oh, right that, to okay. you? That seems about a perfect countdown, actually. I have, I have really no problem because the, 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 the key question I was going to ask is because it didn't have a ton of meaning at the time because we didn't know who, you know, quite what Vit- Vitaly was. The Vitaly Lennox one, although mm-hmm. a lot shorter than a lot of these, was just, you know, perfect and insane and great. But Fury Wilder 3 meant a whole lot more. And uh, you can't discount what AJ and Klitschko meant. I mean, God, that was great theater. And that had, like, royalty to it, right? Like, there was, like, some elements of, like, class to it. I mean, and Vlad went out on his effing shield. (laughs) Um, Karen, are you content with Eric saying that Fury Wilder 3 should be higher than AJ against the former champion Klitschko? Well, the the, the argument that, that Eric made, which is legit is that there were a lot of down spells during that fight. And before it, and before it got really going, it was okay for the first yeah, true. few rounds. 
Um, you know, I my initial instinct partly influenced, as, as we all know, that we're influenced by my ringside, right? And I, I was at Wembley and there were 90,000 people. And so like my initial instinct would have been to rank it higher. But there's legitimate argument that this thing, Fury Wilder 3, took off at a, a high rate and, and just never stopped. My argument slightly against it being that high is that I thought it was quite one-sided after Tyson Fury got up. Um, and for me, I thought that Deontay Wilder was just getting beaten. Um, yeah, that's true. So, so that's because where I stood on it, really. As usual, not really taking a very firm stand. Well, yeah, I think, I was I think say, we need yeah. to ask Luke Thomas to to settle yeah. the debate. Really, yeah. You want decisive action being taken? You go to that uh, curmudgeon. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think you can lose uh, with what you said. I don't have a stinker. I don't have somebody missing that should be there. Would you put a, an underrated classic, uh, Sirhey Liakovich, Lamont Brewster in the top ten, or no? No. Yeah, it, it really didn't, didn't a heavyweight title? That was the other thing. Is it really a heavyweight title fight? Because it was for some belt, but it wasn't yeah. really a heavyweight championship, was it? Right. Really? I think there was there was a belt, but uh, yeah, when it you did. have like the, the lineal title uh, or multiple belts, does uh, does help the case for? All right, final question fight. to take over your podcast. Do <laughs> yes. you love Tyson Holyfield one, even though it became one sided fairly early in the same argument, uh, but just the 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 shock value of Holyfield pulling that upset? I, and who they were at that point. I will I will say what I had said when I was doing the countdown where I threw that in sort of the bottom of the honorable mentions and said it had great elements, but I find it a very overrated fight because the action wasn't actually that good and it doesn't hold up on a rewatch. But certainly in the moment, you thought okay, you were watching something amazing. I rewatched the shit out of that fight. <laughs> I think it's just the energy, the everything. Okay, maybe you, that's you, just you don't You don't speak for the typical person, though, BC. No, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I did score Austin Trout uh, against <laughs> Canelo, which, by the way, in hindsight, I have taken that L and buried it. I was wrong. Okay. okay. In hindsight, I was wrong. Okay. It's about time we, you know what I'm saying? It's about time we came clean on that. All right. A couple of very quick questions before uh, we have to let you go. Uh, very serious boxing question. Terrence Crawford, Errol Spence, what do you think of the chances that happens in 2022 and who do you favor? Um, so I think the chances increase a lot now that he's not, that Terrence is not going back to Bob Arum and top ranking. They increase a real lot. I think the question becomes, a, Spence's timetable, how that fits into it, and B, Al Heyman likes to set things up. And if Bud goes ends up going to the PBC route, which would make it the easiest way to make that fight, I kind of feel like that's something they may set up with interim fights against each other, even though it's not needed. We need to find out right now. I fear that. But who wins right now? I have been a Spence guy this entire run in this great mythical matchup. But I think in my mind, Crawford has passed him. Uh, I think after, before Spence went away the most recent time, I thought resume-wise he had clearly passed Crawford, and, and I was ranking Spence higher pound for pound. And, and let's be fair, in that rank is that sort of you know eye test part of who would right. beat who. I, I've shifted back like a lot of people have because I thought Sean Porter put on a an incredible performance. Maybe one, you know, may, arguably, and it was a loss, but I thought he put on an incredible performance to make Bud Crawford be that great. And it turns out. Bud Crawford is that great. What we've seen the last few years is who he is. He he can paint outside the lines a little abstract, and I think Spence is great, and I think inevitably that's a 12-round fight that you're going to argue either guy could have won, but I think Bud is, is going to win it, and we need it. We need it so badly. We yeah. freaking need this. <laughs> we do. It's not a want anymore. It's a it's like a <laughs> yearning, okay? Ooh. Yeah. Yearning over there. All right. Uh, so last thing. Uh, Kieran subbed in for you on Morning Combat a couple of weeks ago because you were on vacation. And while on vacation, your son got to hang with Usain Bolt. Can you yes. tell the quick version of how that happened? 
this turned out to be incredible and blew us away. So uh, my son does, um, he, he's on the cross country and track team at his middle school. He runs 5Ks, but he also does an adaptive sports program, which if he wanted to go down the road could lead to like a, its own Olympics for, for handicapped children and children with certain uh, deficiencies. And he's got cerebral palsy and a bunch of other things that delay him, but he's this great miracle, incredible, inspiring story. So somebody reached out and told us about this Kids Wish Network, not Make-A-Wish, but also not entirely different, not necessarily aimed at terminally ill kids, but aimed at kids who have overcome the lot. And we applied and we won a year ago uh, a chance to meet Usain Bolt because that was his pick to meet his hero. So here's what's awesome about my son, Isaac, who's 13. He wrote down Usain Bolt or Arnold Schwarzenegger as the person <laughs> he wanted to meet. And the person who works at uh, Kids Wish was like, are you serious about this? And he's like, yeah, my dad and I just watched Predator and Total Recall. And yes, <laughs> yes. So that's the greatest moment of my life, first of all, right there. Uh, the Kids Wish Network was able to get uh, Usain Bolt, but because of COVID, we ended up having a Zoom call with him, and it was magical and they and all that. And there was a bunch of gifts involved. And one of the gifts that Usain told us himself was a surprise cruise with the, the option of maybe getting a chance to see him if the stop is in Jamaica. Well, because of COVID, that turned into an all-inclusive trip to Jamaica, and it so happened he was able to fit us in. We didn't know until two days before, while we were already in Jamaica, that he could do it. He gave us like a half hour of his time, and, and my son really got to pick his brain and ask questions about persevering and, and, and you know hard work and all that. And you know, as a dad, seeing that happen and seeing him take pictures with my kids and doing the lightning bolt pose, uh, it was a you know it was a 1,000 and a 10 out of 10 uh, <laughs> on how cool was you saying, how genuine, how everything. It was this was this was amazing. I mean, this you know, I don't have to talk up Usain Bolt to this. You know, he's arguably the greatest Olympian of all time, but he's just a regular dude. And uh, you know, I think Eric, that's the key to your career, just being a regular dude. You know, relate, relate, hashtag relatable. Exactly. Wow. Did did you did you tell Usain Bolt? You know, there's a lot of money to be made if you want to fight Jake Paul. Uh, <laughs> I did not go to that route. No, no. All right. no next time. Not. Next time. Yeah, I tried to get him tip to tip. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, that's amazing that he gave he gave you like a half hour as well. That's that's not just the hey, how you doing, smiling, doing a selfie kind of thing. That's fantastic. You know, and he felt bad about giving us so little, meaning he was on his way to his elementary school to deliver uh, printers and computers through mm -hmm. a charity uh, charitable thing he was doing with the Epson company. So, like this guy really does this for a living. All, all of the you know these type of things with his time, and it's it's incredible. It's it's inspiring, definitely. Awesome. Wow, that's fantastic. Hey, that's a really good story to end on. Thank you very much, Brian, and thanks very much for joining us. We, as always, it is a pleasure, my friend. Thank you, too. You guys have inspired me more than I'll ever let you know. <laughs> I think you just did let us know. <laughs> but we've inspired him even more. Yes, I guess. <laughs> thanks, BC. Thanks a lot, brother. Our thanks again to Brian, and in tribute to Usain Bolt, Let's run quickly through everything else besides the Showtime pay-per-view card that makes up a busy upcoming week of fights. Uh, first, on Tuesday in Tokyo, pound-for-pounder Naoya Inoue defends his Bantamweight belts against Aran Depayan. Then on Friday in Montreal on ESPN+, Plus, it's light heavyweight champ Artur Beterbiev versus Marcus Brown. And on Saturday the 18th, three different televised cards from Manchester, England on DAZN, a heavyweight rematch between Joseph Parker and Derek Chisora. From San Antonio, also on DAZN, a 12-round light heavyweight bout between Gilberto Zerto Ramirez and Unieski Gonzalez. And on Fox from Minneapolis, super middleweights David Morrell Jr. and Alantes Fox square off. We talked about most of these fights when they were announced, uh, but now that they're each just days away, Kieran, any insights or predictions? 
Uh, as we mentioned at the time, uh, better be versus Brown should be a heck of a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not actually sure whatever happened to Marcus Brown's legal, legal issues that appear to have derailed him. Um, uh, he was indicted for his, I think it was his fourth domestic assault charge back in 2019, but I haven't seen anything since then. So apparently he's allowed to continue uh, fighting. Um, better be will be the favorite there, but Brown is strong and tough enough uh, to make it a good fight. Uh, Parker Chisoros should be absolutely very solid. The first fight was entertaining, if not necessarily demanding of a rematch, uh, but nonetheless, I'll watch that. Uh, uh, Zerdo should take care of Yoneski Gonzalez, who's fallen short when he stepped it up a level and in a way should annihilate Depan. Um, in a way, it's a must-watch because he's in a way, yep. not necessarily because of the quality of the matchup. Better BF Brown is pretty close to a must-watch, uh, largely because of the importance of Better BF to the division, but also because it's a good matchup. Um, the other fights are they're ones that I may watch live or may not, but will not be upset if I end up catching the highlights only. Yeah, we're on the same page with these. I, the fight I'm most interested in is Better BF versus Brown because Better BF is an elite fighter and the legit light heavyweight champ, and Brown has some talent, so this shouldn't be a walkover. Um, that fight and Inouye are the two uh, that I, too, am most likely to carve out time to watch live in a way because he's in a way. I, I'd watch him against any opponent. Yeah. That said, I, I do hope he finds himself in with one of the bantamweight or super bantamweight elites in his next fight, like Nonito Denaire, for instance. <laughs> um, it's been kind of a wasted year for the monster in 2021. He's 28 years old. No more wasted years, please. Agreed. All right. It is time for the news. And the big news this week was the announcement of the International Boxing Hall of Fame's Class of 2022, which will, of course, be inducted along with the classes of 2021 and 2020 in a star-studded weekend as Canastoda has seen in decades. Uh, No surprise at all, with the modern fighters voted in, just as we expected. Roy Jones, James Toney, and the greatest boxer of all time... (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> Miguel Cotto got the votes. Uh, in the women's modern category, Re- Regina Halmick, finally, and Holly Holm are going in. In the non-participant category, the inductees will be publicist Bill Kaplan and the late ring announcer Chuck Hall. Uh, also getting the call in the observer category are journalist Ron Borges and historian producer Bob Yalen. And lastly, former junior lightweight champion Todd Morgan will be an inductee in the old-timer category. Uh, Eric, any surprises, be they pleasant surprises or disappointing oversights? Um, first of all, uh, I just checked with the CompuSci counters, and you were up to three size on yes. this podcast over Miguel Cotto. I think that has got to be a new uh, CompuSci record. Um, <laughs> uh, certainly uh, no surprises with the modern fighters. Uh, we said flat out there was no conceivable scenario in which those exact three didn't get in. A pleasant surprise, definitely, that the exact two female fighters I voted for did get in. Uh, Halmick, I thought, was ever so slightly overdue, and uh, Holm was just barely due, in my opinion. It kind of works out well to have these three classes go in together. We get six fighters all at once who really represent the best of the last 25 years of women's boxing. Christy Martin, Lucia Riker, Leila Ali, Ann Wolf, Helmick, and Holm. Uh, that's a, a strong half dozen to start with, uh, although I wouldn't mind seeing the IBHOF now drop down to one per year so it doesn't get too watered down, but that's mm-hmm. a discussion for another time, I suppose. Um, moving on to the other categories, I'm not going to crap on any of the inductees. I will say there are others I voted for 
who I would consider to have been snubbed. Uh, look, these are crowded fields. It's hard to get in. But um, Tim Ryan is overdue as, as an yep. excellent broadcaster who called tons of huge fights and called them well. Some of the others, I know you like to stump for Bob Canobio and John Shepard, uh, who have indeed had an undeniable impact, and I voted for both of them. But I will remain optimistic that their time will come sometime in the next few years. Uh, how about you? What were your reactions to the Hall of Fame voting? Very little to add. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to see Miguel get in, but... As you said, obviously, these three were always going to get in. Mm. It has been over the last several years, partly due to the changes in eligibility, some really, really tough ballots. That's why a guy who is almost certainly a future Hall of Famer like Carl Froch is presently on the outside looking in, um, having to get through some of that backlog. Uh, I'm very happy that Regina Helmick is finally in. Thank you for voting for her this year and indeed for last year. Uh, she absolutely deserves to be part of the first class to, to, to be at an uh, IBHOF induction. Um, and yes, I will continue to, to vote for Bob and John until they do get in. But like you said, especially of late, there are just some outstanding candidates and, and some categories, especially that only have like two inductees a year. It's awfully, yeah. awfully hard to get through them all. Um, but all told, I really hope we're there at Canastota this coming summer. I wanted, I would have liked for us for us to have been there in 2020. I would have liked for us to have been there this year, but my goodness, I sure as heck hope we manage to make it this summer, assuming everything goes ahead. Yep. Definitely. All right, let's run through the news undercard. Uh, a lot of stuff having to do with alphabet belt maneuvering and purse bids. Uh, the biggest news on that front is that one sanctioning body has officially ordered Tyson Fury to defend against Dillian White. Somewhat controversial in that White pulled out of an eliminator fight with Otto Valin and is now just getting the big opportunity straight away. Javante Davis holds belts right now at both 135 and 140 pounds, and the alphabet group required him to give one of those up. So Tank is vacating his super lightweight belt and staying for now at lightweight. Uh, we've talked about the welterweight tournament that one alphabet group was arranging and how maybe your Dennis Ugas would look to bypass it if he could secure a bigger fight. Apparently, he hasn't, as reportedly Ugas and Imanta Stanionis have reached an agreement for a fight and will not go to a purse bid. One fight that did go to purse bid was Trevor Bryan versus Manuel Char. Uh, somehow, these are one <laughs> alphabet group's idea of top heavyweight contenders. Uh, and uh, the second 90-year-old promoter in the news this week, Don King, uh, won that purse bid. Uh, last couple of items about notable fights in the works. Multiple reporters are saying that Keith Thurman will return January 29th on a Fox pay-per-view against Mario Barrios. And Keith Eideck of Boxing Scene was first to report a Showtime fight that hasn't been made official yet. Mr. Gary Russell ending his latest lengthy inactivity to face undefeated Filipino Mark Magsayo. Uh, Kieran, your thoughts on any of these items? Uh, to go backward, uh, all I've seen of Maxayo was that impressive KO of Julio Seja uh, underneath Ugas Pacquiao. Uh, that was a heck of a KO. Um, he's undefeated. He's strong. He's fast. Whether any of that is enough to make a dent in the, well, I was going to say the annual appearance, now the biennial appearance <laughs> yeah. of Mr. Gary Russell Jr., I don't know. Uh, I really like Thurman Barrios as a fight, although I probably prefer Barrios at 140 than 147. Uh, I'm glad Barrios is getting a good-sized opportunity after performing so well against Javante Davis. But a pay-per-view? A pay-per-view headliner? That's baffling to me. That's two 
faintly absurd pay-per-view main events with which Fox is opening yeah. 2022. I, I just don't know what their goal is there or what's going on or what's what's happening. I'm happy that Trevor Bryan and Manuel Char are getting paydays. Um, although, even in his dotage, I suspect, with Don King involved, they better make sure they thoroughly check the itemized <laughs> deductions on their pay stubs. Um, Ugas Stanionis should actually be a heck of a fight, yeah. uh, even if Ugas, you know, should could perhaps feel a little hard done by that he's being forced into this um, whole like box off tournament after taking Manny Pacquiao's scalp. Um, similarly, I feel somewhat for our friend Otto Valin, but it's also hard not to feel that White deserves this crack. He's been he's been that organization's mandatory for some time now. Uh, and has been forced to wait. And I actually quite like Fury White. I mean, outside of the obvious fights against Usyk and Joshua, it's probably the fight that I like the best for Tyson Fury, to be yeah. honest. Yep. All right, then. It is time for this week's top five list. Uh, last week, you asked me to come up with the top five best performances of the year. Uh, I went back through our old podcasts to remind myself of what we had to choose from and reminded myself of several I'd forgotten, actually. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot. Uh, what was interesting to me, a mild spoiler alert, is how many of my choices for best performance in this list are also contenders for upset of the year. It's kind of clear. Yeah. It's clear that subconsciously I was grading these performances on the curve, right, <laughs> against the level of expectation going into them. So I think I had have actually it might not be 19 fights in total hmm. the top five and a whole bunch of honorable mentions i'm sure i still miss some when putting together a list like this i always have this nagging fear at the back of my mind that i've missed this incredibly obvious fight um that everybody else including you is expecting me to have at number one and i don't even have it in my top 20 but well there <laughs> you right, go we'll such as like but here we go here we go number five september 25th tottenham hotspur stadium in london alexander usik 112 Anthony Joshua. This wasn't necessarily as complete and dominant a performance as some on the list, or even some of the honorable mentions. One judge had Usyk winning by just 115 to 113. But this was a former cruiserweight champ stepping up to heavyweight and in just his third fight at the weight, uh, taking on a guy much bigger and theoretically much stronger than him, uh, outboxing him, outthinking him, outfighting him, and ultimately completely befuddling one of the two or three best heavyweights in the world. Uh, and for that, and particularly for the way in which he took over down the stretch, and particularly for the the denouement when J Joshua was basically beaten mentally and physically and just collapsing on the ropes at the end as Usyk took the fight to him. That's why Usyk's on the list for this, and I think he deserves to be. Yeah, he, I think he has to be in the top five. I didn't carefully put together my one through five in order. I gotcha. just sort of grouped, here's my top five and here are my next bunch. Um, but I was sort of thinking that Usyk was prob would probably be in my top two or three if I really thought about it. So I, I think five is about as low as you can put him uh, for, for this performance against this opponent. All right, number four. Uh, October 9th, T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. We are staying with the heavyweights. Tyson Fury, TKO11, Deontay Wilder. Uh, the consensus fight of the year also includes one of the best performances of the year. Look, as you know, one reason I was ever so slightly less effusive about this fight than with some others is the fact that I felt that outside a couple of rounds, this is basically a one-sided beatdown. But if I then have to take points, if I take points off it as a fight, as a competitive contest for that reason, 
have to give those fights to Tyson Fury for what he did and his performance. Uh, and he gets extra credit for the fact he had to lift himself off the canvas twice in round four against the man who is still probably the most dangerous one punch puncher in boxing. And very swiftly after that, I thought, put himself back in full control, beating down a highly dangerous opponent once more. He maybe loses one a point or two for the fact that he was more dominant the last time they met. But this was still a spectacular performance. Yeah, the last point you made was made was a big one for me. That I so I have this on my list of not quite in the top five, but certainly worthy of consideration, just for that reason that he was so much better in the second fight. Although there's something to be said for having to overcome some adversity in this one, which he mm. didn't in the second fight. But for me, I couldn't quite cram this into my top five, but I certainly see the case. Okay, uh, number three, February twentieth, MGM Grand, Las Vegas. Oscar Valdez, KO 10, Miguel Burchell. Uh, Valdez was the underdog going into this 130-pound title fight, arguably more than he should have been, but he was by far the superior man in this contest, boxing off his toes, keeping Burchell on his back foot, preventing his countrymen from really getting any kind of head of steam going, and then finishing him off with a spectacular one-punch knockout that is probably still, 10 months later, the KO of the year. Yeah, you know, it's funny, as I was going through all of my uh, notes for podcasts uh, throughout the year to come up with these, we uh, we uh, I decided to, you know, kill multiple birds with one stone and jot down my other potential award nominees. So the KO of the year is a tough call, uh, and I have this in the mix, but I'm not sure if it's going to win for me. But in any case, definitely a top five performance of the year. I thought Oscar Valdez has to be in there in the top five for sure. Indeed. And we stay in Las Vegas for my number two, August 21st, back at the T-Mobile Arena, or Dennis Ugas uh, winning a decision against Manny Pacquiao. Just a tremendous performance by Ugas. Came in late in the day to take the place of Errol Spence, and yet with only a few weeks notice, had the perfect game plan to defeat a future first ballot Hall of Famer. Granted, he was aided by the fact that this was a future first ballot Hall of Famer whose legs seemingly were no longer there, who no longer quite had the foot speed or the torque to set about him in the way he'd set about 60 or so professional victims in his past. You can only fight the person in front of you. And Uga stuck to his task. It was a fairly even first half. Then he pulled away over the second half of the fight, just befuddling and confusing an absolutely outstanding boxer. Full credit to Ordenis Ugas, who thoroughly deserves, I think, to be way up at the top of this list. Yeah, so this was another one that, like Fury, I had it just outside my top five, but I certainly see the case for it, especially when you factor in the legendary status of the man that he was fighting uh, and that he defeated and that he sent into retirement. Just a, a tremendous performance uh, from, from Uga. Certainly, uh, this is just this whole category that I've given you, it, it's really tricky. There is just like so little separating some of these great performances yes. this year. It's it's kind of harder than fighter of the year in a way to, yeah. to rank the performances of the year. So I didn't have this in my top five, but again, no, uh, no disputing uh, your decision to put it in there. Right. And it's also what do you emphasize when you're assessing a performance as well, of course. So, um, and I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if by the time I've gone through the honorable mentions, we have basically the same fights, if yeah. not in the same order. Uh, my number one though, November 27th, Madison Square Garden, George Campos yep. Jr., one twelve. Teofimo Lopez. Look, nobody, nobody gave Cambosis a chance in hell to win this fight. Uh, Lopez had most recently defeated the pound-for-pound pound number one fighter in the galaxy, Vasily Lomachenko. He'd done so with boxing skill and discipline. It was hard to see anyway 
in which Cambosis could upend him. Anyway, in which he was a match for, let alone superior to the champion, but he came at Lopez from the start, withstood a ferocious first round assault um, by knocking him down, by knocking Lopez down at the end of that first round. Also survived a 10th round knockdown, coming back to finish the fight more strongly. Uh, moved in and out, proved hard to time and predict, got in Lopez's grill. And for all Lopez's protestations and his father's protestations that he won 10 or more rounds, Cambosis deserved this win by 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 a mile. The only problem is that it was split. Uh, he deserved more than that. But with everything that is now opening up to him, and also, by the way, full credit to Cambosis, not only for putting in the performance of the year on my list in a fight, but the post-fight performance of the year. Right. His continuing publicity <laughs> tour has been absolutely a model for how a fighter should maximize an opportunity that is presented to him. And I like the way he's shown a combination of tremendous respect for his opponent and for others, while also saying, I'm now the man and whoever fights me next is coming to Australia. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, a phenomenal performance, especially relative to expectations. And so, well, as I said, I didn't, you know, rank mine precisely. I do think the top three in some order for me were Cambosos, Usyk and Valdez. And those are all in your top five here. Okay. A uh, huge list of honorable mentions. I won't talk very much about them. I'll just mention them. Mm-hmm. Mauricio Lara against Josh Warrington. Yep. Javante uh, Davis against Mario Barrios. I actually put in there. Hmm. Um, Vasily Lomachenko against Masayoshi Nakatani. Uh, I thought Terence Crawford against Sean Porter. Uh, Stephen Fulton against Angelo Leo. Brandon Lee against Samuel Tea. Uh, Angel Fierro against Alberto Machado. Getting knocked down twice early and then coming back to, to, to bludgeon and stop Machado. Jamel Herring against Carl Frampton. Shakur Stevenson against Jamel Herring. Uh, Canelo against Billy Joe Saunders. I know a lot of people had Saunders quite high up uh, up until the point of that uh, knockout, but I thought Canelo was fighting a, a tremendous fight there. Uh, Nonito Donaire against Nordin Ubali. You could also actually um, put in Raymond Caballo. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just thought that Ubali going in was, I consider him a higher quality of opponent. You've mentioned him already. Rashid Warren against Damian Vasquez, an unexpectedly explosive and exciting performance from him. You also mentioned this guy, uh, Montana Love, against mm-hmm. Ivan Baranchik, absolutely making the most of the platform presented to him. And a last-minute entry into the honorable mentions, Conor Ben over Chris Algieri. Yeah, it, uh, so you, you've forgotten a few that I included, but I didn't have a bunch of the ones that you included, so that's fine. So I'll tell you the other two that I thought were my sort of in my unofficial top five were two that you mentioned, uh, Crawford against Porter and Fulton against Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't mention Brandon Figueroa against uh, Luis Neri. I thought that yep. was worthy of consideration. I had two different Boots Ennis fights in here. Both the wins over Lipinets and Dulorme I thought were worthy of consideration. Yep. And then two others you didn't mention uh, were Castaño against Charlo, just to, yes. to get the draw. Um, yep. Was a hell of a performance. And um, one of the contenders for upset of the year, Sandor Martin, uh, beating Mikey Garcia. I sh- you know what? That that one especially was just an error on my part. I know it pops into my head, and somehow I just forgot to note it down, and it just disappeared. Yeah, Sandor Martin at the very least should be on that list. I All agree. Right, well, perhaps he will get his due when we are deciding what the upset of the year is on our year Perhaps so. Pad. Perhaps so. All right, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to Brian Campbell for joining us. We will be back in one week with our post-fight thoughts on the Paul Woodley 2 card and everything else happening in the boxing world. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.